Well, this morning, Pastor Gary and Carol are not here. They are down in sunny Florida. Oh, right. They're down there for meetings, though, for general counsel. So pray for them as they're there that uh, the meetings will go well and that uh, they will have a relaxing time in their meetings and probably on the beach somewhere. But that doesn't mean that we can't have a good time here this morning, right? Right, right because we're celebrating a month of unique, weird, crazy holidays. And so today's national holiday is, if you haven't guessed it, National Mutt Day. That's right. And so one of the things, if you didn't know this, I didn't know this, is that the word mutt comes from the 1800s. Anyone want to guess what that word means? What it's referring to? Anybody? You, you guys are quiet this morning. You need to wake up. We need to wake up in here. Okay, maybe this will wake you up. The word mutt is considered a derogatory term, meaning a stupid person. Now, we are not celebrating stupid people today. I'm just throwing that out there. But somewhere between the 1800s and today, that term in modern vernacular now has been assigned to mixed breed dogs. And so there's a holiday that is around this, and it happens actually two times a year. And one of those is today on the 31st, and the other is in December 2nd. And it's to bring attention to many great mixed breeds of dogs that are in need of homes. And so they're spotlighting them twice a year for this. And so if, if I'm just curious, how many dog owners are, are in this place? Oh, quite a few. How many here, if your dog owner would say your dog is a mixed breed, you'd classify it as a mutt of some kind? Oh, about half. All right, so we got a division. And so that's okay because whether we realize it or not, in the dog world, there is actually a really sharp separation among serious breeders and dog owners, those who are purebreds and those who are the mixed breeds, the mutts. And so I experienced this firsthand um, several years ago when my wife and I, we got married and we had kids. And so when you're married, you have kids, what do you do? You get a dog, right? So what kind of dog do you get? So we wanted a dog that was you know, going to be a great dog for our family, a small dog, one that didn't shed, one that was like, it didn't have allergies it was going to give to us. And so we landed on this dog that was a Cavachon. And so hybrid dog. So we got this dog and it was a terror. So it was definitely disobedient. So what do you do when you have a dog that's disobedient? You take it to obedience school. So, um, when we went to our first class in obedience training, we're there with all of these other breed, breeders, and while we're there, everything's going good. She's explaining the class. We're working on some basic skills. And so, but somewhere along in the middle, they had playtime, right? And this is where the divide happens. So the purebreds get to play first. They're out there running around. And uh, then after she's done and they're playing and then they, they call out the, the mixed hybrid, the, the lowest state dog, that, that was my dog, right? And there was like two of us, okay? If, if, if there was ever discrimination against dogs, it was happening right there. I mean, when they were letting the purebreds out there, I just wanted to let my dog go and see if someone would faint. I mean, it, it's just that kind of thing. And so you could see right away that there's this divide between serious pet owners among dogs. And so purebreds, if you haven't already guessed it, they're a pedigree dog. 
right? You can often make better predictions about their temperament or what you're looking for based on the type of breed and the characteristics of their parents. Mixed breeds, on the other hand, are much more difficult, right? Because they inherit the, the characteristics and traits from their parents, their grandparents, that could be from a much broader range of breeds. So it's hard to know what kind of personality that they might have. But on the other side, that's a benefit in a mixed breed is that they can have muted temperaments. Some of the things that you find in a purebred, um, they, it might be more muted, so they might be a, a little bit easier to manage. They're not as subject to health defects as purebreds. But here's the one thing that I want you to grab hold of this morning when we're talking about this concept of purebreds and mixed breeds. Among the AKC, the primary divide amongst purebreds is amongst the breed registry. This is the only open to the, the pedigree dogs who can demonstrate their lineage. Now think about that. You might have a purebred dog. You know it, I know it, but unless you can prove it by papers, it's a mutt. That's what the AKC says about purebreds and mixed breeds. And somewhere along the, the way, the AKC had recognized there were a lot of dogs that had the ability to perform and do well, and so they created a category back in 2010 called the AKC Canine Partnership Program. It's an enrollment program for mixed breeds and other dogs not eligible for AKC purebred registration. Since then, in 2010, there's been a total number of enrollments of over 420,000 canines as of June 2020. All American dogs have earned more than 21,000 titles in the AKC championship events and programs. And in this past year alone, approximately 10% of the participants were in this partnership program. 10% that won titles were mixed breeds. And so among the top of those, I have three this morning that I'd just like you to, to, to hear and see. Number one, according to the AKC that they said are, are just fine representations, is a dog by the name of Uggy. Uggy was um, seen by her would-be owner, Shannon Jones, surveying a potential damage from an ice storm in her yard when she caught the eye of her gas grill and something looked odd underneath it. Upon closer inspection, it revealed there was a bulge under there under the cover of a tiny, trembling puppy. She was somewhere between the age of six and eight weeks old and very sick. She took her in. She didn't really want a dog. She already had one, and this dog just kind of you know, grew on the family, so she decided to train this dog. And by the time this dog was 13 years old, Uggie had received more than 240 titles in agility, obedience, rally, herding, freestyle, nose work, barn hunt, and drafting. I don't even know what all those mean. <laughs> she was the first mixed breed dog in the country to earn the AKC Rally Masters title. I, I think that's probably a big deal, right? Then we have Coda. He was a parvo puppy handed over to the veterinarian clinic to be euthanized. But instead, they treated him, housed him in a kennel, used him as a blood donor, and adopted him out. 
And upon adoption, they trained him, and eventually he became the first all-American dog to earn the AKC Fast Cat, which is the 100-yard dash. Then last, we have Coconut. Coconut spent the first three years of life in a basement until his owner turned him over to a shelter. When the would-be owner saw something special in Coco, she took him home. She said, I was looking for my next therapy dog, and I just saw something good in his faith. Even though he was completely untrained, missing a lot of hair, bow-legged, and wild. But one year after the owner brought him home, Coconut passed the AKC Canine Good Citizen Test and went on to be a registered as a therapy dog with the Good Dog Foundation and Pet Partners. And today he visits two hospitals, including intensive care, cardiology, and cancer centers, as well as several other schools as a reading therapy dog. Isn't that awesome? So there's some things this morning that I just kind of want to throw out there as we move forward and we talk about Scripture is there's things that we can obviously learn about mutts and mixed breeds that they have a lot to offer the world. You don't have to have the right paperwork to have a good dog. And so if we translate that into this morning's text of Scripture, there's some things that I, I want us to, to look at, some so-called mutts of Scripture that I think could speak to us on this holiday this morning. In fact, when we're looking at the text this morning, we'll be looking at different places in the Gospels, and the Jewish community had become a religious, like, uh, a religious community of insiders. Rules and regulations, legalism, it was all about lineage. And the mutts that we're going to see are outsiders, they're the polluted religion, yet they'll surprise us that I think they could teach each one of us something really important. The first mutt that we're going to look at is a mutt that knows how to ask. There's some backstory if we look at Matthew chapter 15 that the Jews have approached Jesus when they see the disciples not washing their hands appropriately as they're getting ready to eat and they're saying these guys are unclean and Jesus says it's not what goes inside of you but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. So those are the, 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 the background of what's happening of what uh, follows Because in just a few moments, we're going to see another person who, uh, what's coming out of their mouth, what she's confessing, that reveals a lot about who she is. Here's what it says in scripture. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. She's shouting this. My daughter is demon-possessed and is terribly, uh, suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Yet the woman was persistent. She came and knelt down before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, is it not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs? Yes, it is, Lord. She said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request had been granted and her daughter was healed in that moment. Now here's something I want us to think about as we move forward as we look at this person. 
What motivates an outsider such as this person to ask for something that she knows she has no right to ask for? I mean, think about what's happening in this story. She's approaching Jesus. She's a Canaanite woman. She's on the outside. Her customs and her cultures are vastly different than the Jewish community. She understands she's already on the outside and she approaches Jesus for help. Now, reading this story as I just read to you, it would seem that Jesus' answer are pretty harsh. He ignores it at first, it seems like, and then his response is to us basically like, you're a dog. Is it right for me to give crumbs from the master's table or give food from the master's table? And while that might seem harsh, her response is even more surprising. It doesn't deter her or draw her away. She says, you're right, I am a dog but even the dogs deserve crumbs. That's a pretty powerful interaction that's happening right here. Here's what she's saying. She's recognizing her position, considering Jesus's mission. She's had no direct exposure to Jesus prior to this encounter, at least that it says in scripture, only of what she's heard or maybe seen from a distance, yet she's followed the crumbs of faith. She says, son of David, crumb number one. That's a Messiah reference, savior, Lord, one who has authority, crumb number two, master as one who could help. And so I was thinking about that. These are three obvious ones from the story, but I wonder what other crumbs that might've led her to this interaction with Jesus. And so here's some things that I was just looking for that Jesus did up to this point and crumbs that she could have tucked away by faith. She could have heard that he healed the leopard and thought to herself, he could heal my situation. She could have heard he healed the Roman ser servant and thought to herself, his power isn't limited to geographical location. He could just speak a word and my daughter would be healed. He stills the storm. He could calm my storm. He cast out the demon possessed and put him in the right mind. He did it for others. He could do it again. He healed a daughter. His power is no less powerful even when we think that he is too late. He healed a woman with a blood issue. She could have thought to herself, long-standing trouble is no trouble for Jesus. He healed two blind people. Son of David, they cried out. And maybe this is where she pulled that son of David reference. We don't know for sure, but no misery is too great for the Messiah. He fed the 5,000. He can take the pittance that we have and make it a plethora. He calms the storm and walks on the water. A sinking boat isn't all that troublesome when Jesus can stand what is looking to swallow us up. Any one of these things could have been crumbs that she could have tucked away. But she took these crumbs and applied faith to it and watched a miracle happen in front of herself. In fact, Jesus noted this and said, your faith is great. It lets you and I know that faith is what gives us access to something that by ourselves we have no right to. It's by faith that we're saved. 
It's the gift of God that nobody should vote. By faith that we are justified. We don't have access to Jesus. We don't have access to heaven unless we come by faith. And you're seeing that happen right now. She understands, I have no right to ask you, Jesus, but I believe anyway. Because you're that good. It was her faith in action, a faith that reached beyond what she thought about God. She only knew that Jesus could help. It was a persistent faith, an unshakable faith. And she only understood that just if I could just get a crumb, that would be all that I would need. In fact, I think it's worth noting that great faith isn't just classified as somebody walking on the water, but Jesus classified it as somebody who was persistent unshakable, unwavering, who understood that faith is what can make something great. In fact, there's two different places in scripture, both by outsiders, that describe the idea of great faith. One we see earlier in the book of Matthew of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8 where it's great faith and this idea of great is a sizable faith, great in number, a faith that is vast and has a depth to it. And this was an outsider that Jesus says this guy has deep, vast faith, but the faith that this woman has is a different kind of great. It's a faith that's described as intense, a wide faith. It's faith like a storm. That's the kind of faith that she had. And she took that faith and was bold enough to bring her request to the master. And so I've always lived by this this rule that um, if you don't ask, you don't get I've, I just have. And so, um, in fact, sometimes um, when I'm dealing with an issue or I'm talking about ideas, I, I'm, I'm persistent. I like to run down a problem and really run down ideas until we know this is not going to work. And so I, I, I kind of see that in this story. She's not just asking. She's persistently asking until there's no other alternative. And so there's a difference, though, between participating in a miracle and initiating the miracle. You see, the disciples were also in this story, and you can read a few chapters back where they went out amongst the communities, and they were, they were healing the sick. They were casting out demons, and these were the ones that were buffering between Jesus and her and were saying, send her away, send her away. They were participating, but they were not helping initiating in the miracle. And sometimes when we need a miracle and we're pursuing an answer from God, sometimes we wait thinking if there were just somebody who would speak to me, who who might come along and give me a word, and sometimes that happens, but listen, more times than I can count in my own life that it's because I initiated, I asked, and I kept asking, and I kept asking, and I didn't stop until I got an answer. It may not have been the answer that I was looking for, but I didn't stop until there was an answer. She didn't wait for somebody else to bring her her miracle. She initiated the miracle, knowing that if I could just get a crumb, that's all I would need. 
Mutt number two. Mutt number two knows how to receive. We see another place in John chapter four of a woman at the well. And this is great dialogue. You can turn there and you can read about it where it says in one one. Uh, translation of scripture that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Like this was the place of mixed breeds. Like the two um, theolo- uh, theologies of the faith were, were different. So much so that there was a rift among the people. And yet Jesus is traveling through here to meet this woman at a well who was out there at midday because uh, it's the only time really she could probably go out there because she's an outsider amongst her own people. She's not just a mixed breed amongst the Jewish people, she's also an outsider. And so we see this woman at the well and here's some things that she perceives about Jesus. Jesus comes up to her and says, woman, can you give me something to drink? She perceives that Jesus is out of his mind. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. I'm sure she was probably like, just go away. It's bad enough already. You're speaking with a woman who is of a low stature. What are you doing? She perceived that Jesus intended to draw from the same well. He's asking for something and saying, I have this living water. And she says, you don't have anything to draw with. She's assuming that he's going to draw something out of the same well that she's in. And you know, sometimes that's the way we look about the issues of our life when we're asking for help. We only see our well and say, God, what are you going to do in here? How are you going to draw out of here? It might be from somewhere else. He has living water that we may not realize, that we don't know about, that we haven't experienced yet. She perceived that Jesus had nothing to draw with. She perceived Jesus knew nothing about her life. She asked him for this drink of living water and his response was, go call your husband. She says, I don't have one. He says, you're right. You've been married five, like, to several different people, divorced, and the person you're living with now is not your husband. Like her life is a mess. He knew more about her than she realized. And in that moment, she's like, I think you're a prophet. And she goes on this tangent of, of, of this theology of here of, well, when the Messiah comes and all of this, and there, we worship here, and you guys worship here, and he'll set the facts straight. But I want you to think about this question for a moment. What would cause a mixed breed to exchange the well of her old life and receive living water? I'm going to give you the answer. I believe it's because she believed things could change. And change begins with first impressions. And so to kind of give you an example of what this could look like, I want to do a little experiment. So I need like, any math people in here? Like I love math, any math? Anybody like numbers in here? No one's going to volunteer. <laughs> I'm going to come down here and I'm going to just pick on people, all right? Linda, you're, you're going to come up here. You can stand right here. <laughs> 
Yeah, give it up for Linda. <laughs> she hates me right now. Carrie, can I borrow you? Come on up here. Okay, good. So these are two fine people who are going to help me solve a problem, all right? So, uh, what's that? No, 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 you don't, you don't need to face the, the congregation. You're going to be looking up this screen. And Linda, you're going to be person one, and uh, you're going to be person two, okay? So, I need a timekeeper. Anybody who can keep time for me, like on their phone. Man, you guys. Anybody who can count one, one thousand, two, one thousand. All right, Barry, come here. You're going to keep time for me. Give it up for Barry. One way or another, we're going to solve some problems this morning. Okay, so you're going to just keep time. You can count it in your head. It doesn't have to be out loud. But when it, once he hits five seconds, you need to stop them. Okay, so you get five seconds for this math equation. And then you're going to get your own math equation. And you're going to get five seconds. When he says stop, whatever answer that you have arrived at, hold that number. Okay, so are you ready to do this? Okay, you're going to get five seconds. All right, I'm count of three and then it's going. You ready? Okay, one. Two, three, here we go. You have five seconds. Okay, take it off there. Quick, don't let her say it anymore. There we go. Okay, just think of a number. Find a number in your head. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready for yours? <laughs> okay, you're going to have five seconds for this number on three. One, two, three. All right, time's up. Okay, what's your number? 340. 340, okay? Everyone remember 340, okay? All right. I'll say 340,000. 340,000. Wow. He's, he's an overestimator. That's great. I like his style. Okay, give it up for these guys real quick. All right. So here's this this theory that's out there. It's called the anchoring and adjustment bias. It influences the way people intuitively assess probabilities. People start with an implicitly suggested reference point called the anchor, and they make adjustments to reach their estimate. A person begins with a first approximation, the anchor, and then makes incremental adjustments based on additional information. These adjustments are usually insufficient, giving the initial anchor a great deal of influence over future assessments. So, this experiment was done a, a bunch, a, like, across a bunch of people, and most people on average, for the one equation going from little to big, said that that number was 512. What was your number? 340, okay? On average, most people said from the big number, from big to little, that that number was 2,250. What was your number? 340,000. The actual number is 40,320. Now, Here's what we need to learn from this. If you want to overestimate and go way big, you need to see Carrie after this because he will help encourage you, right? He was way over, all right? But on average, think about this. 
When it's little to big, it was five, like 512. When it was big to little, it was 2,000. On average, most people estimated when in fact the actual number is 40,000. So I want to translate that into the story. What is your first impressions of Jesus? That can change how you view and make adjustments along the way. If you see him as small, you estimate small. If you see him as big, you estimate bigger. But in reality, he's way bigger. Right? And the reason I showed you this this morning is because this bias that's here is we all do this. When we anchor ourselves to the first thing, whatever we anchor our lives to first is how we tend to estimate toward our future. And most of the time, based on this, we get it wrong or we underestimate. It's true. And so alongside of that is this other bias. It's called the sunken cost fallacy bias. This is seen a lot in the business world. It's basically the idea of investing and continually investing in a bad thing. Just, you just see a sinking ship, but yet you keep investing. It's irrationally clinging to things that have already cost you something. It's like even though you know the ship's going down, you keep investing. You invest your time, your money, your emotions, and it hurts to let go. And I would suggest to you that those kind of two things are the things that might be wrestled with in this story. Of the anchor point of this woman and the investments that she made. She was out, of that, out at noon for a reason, because she was an outsider amongst her own people. She wasn't a person of high estate. And when you see the interaction of the story and when she changed, she changed when she realized the person that she was standing in front of her was the Christ. That was the moment where she readjusted her anchor point. And she had a choice. She could have kept investing in a bad lifestyle and bad decisions, but she wanted to change. And I think for probably most of us in this room, if we knew that we could change and things that could be different, we would, right? And listen, change can happen when you readjust your anchor point, not to your circumstances, but the one who holds all circumstances in his hands. And that's Jesus. And that's what you're seeing happening in this story right? That she is there in this moment and she has this great dialogue. What are you doing associating with me? She comes up with all kinds of ways to derail the conversation and it just comes back to this one moment when she recognizes that her savior is standing in front of her and that was the moment where she chose to readjust her anchor point. And I'm telling you this morning, if your life is marked by some bad decisions, if you're here this morning believing things can't change, they can. They can. Your estimation of Jesus is too small. He is way bigger. He is exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think bigger. 
He is just that big. Are you in this place right now? I said he's big. He is so big. And when she realized that in this moment that I can change, things can be different, it says she got up from there, she left her jar and went back into town, even though she's an outsider, even though she's rejected, and starts telling everybody, hey, you gotta come see this person who told me everything that I've done in my life. And now they're probably thinking, we don't wanna know about it. But they wanted to meet the person who, could, who knew that, who could bring change. I'm sure there are other people in that community that wanted to change. And change transforms by the way that we drink. And so you won't find this in the story. So if you'll bear with me for just a few moments. So I like illustrations. I like every part of the illustrations and the analogies to work. And so this illustration is not one of those, okay? You can't match everything up to what I'm saying in scripture and make it all work out in your nice, perfect world. But if you listen to what I'm saying, I think that it might help you this morning because I've been in every one of these places. Place number one of how we choose to drink. And in this cup, let's just say this cup, is a representation of the life change that Jesus can give to us. And I'm not just talking about salvation. I'm talking about the change that we often look for in security and healing and help and wholeness and assurance and all of the things that we worry about in our minds and here. Right? And so this is a cup that remains present, always present on the table. This is a place where I would suggest you is a person who knows that there's life there, but doesn't drink. They're always questioning. They're like the skeptic of of finding that change whether it's, is it really gonna happen? Am I really saved? Is he really gonna come through for me? That's right here in this cup. I've been in this place before. How do you get out of this place? You start by believing. You start by opening God's word, reading it, and then walking in it. There's no other way. You start by doing what the woman who had faith, she took the crumbs and she applied faith to it and watched God do a miracle. That can happen for you. The second one is one that I see a, a lot as well. And this is the one that I would call the minimalist, right? I've been here and this is a person who has their, their um, help, all that they have in their faith, like refined down to like a routine, like a confined thing like this spoon, like they spoon feed themselves drinking like living water. Sometimes that's just coming to church on Sunday and that's it. If all you do is just show up to church on Sunday, you might find yourself in this cup. If all you do is find yourself somebody else preparing something for you in a confined thing where you can reach down with a spoon in your routine This might be you. I've been here. But here's the problem with this. Is that when you go through life's difficulty, it's really hard to drink a cup with a spoon. 
it takes a whole lot longer. So what do you do? You put the spoon away and you start drinking and you drink deep and you keep drinking until you're full, right? But then we have this one here that I will call the guzzler. Now, now, nobody else looking around, but I just wonder, is there anybody here who's, who drinks from the jug out of the fridge? <laughs> See, I know there wasn't any hands that went up, but I saw the eyes go back and forth. It's like, <laughs> yep, not raising my hand, but I'm shaking my head, yep, yep, I've been there. And so, this is the one that I see a lot, especially with young people or, or new believers, right? You tend to look at spiritual life of drinking from a pitcher. You want it all, and you want it all right now. And it's like picking up this pitcher, and you start guzzling it, right? And if I were to do that right now, what do you think would happen? I'd make a mess. I'd spill it. It would all run out somewhere. And the reason for that is, is because you can't drink it all right now. Not that way. And the truth is, everything that God has to work in your life, every great thing in the future, every healing, everything, it can't all happen right now in this moment. And so that brings me to the fourth one. Now remember, I've been in, in all of these. And this fourth one is, is the one that, that I go to every day, at least at home, right, in, with this. And so let me tell you about my longest two minutes of every morning that I just hate. Okay, I do, I do. So I have to get coffee in the morning. That's right. Any coffee drinkers here? Yeah. So I go to my fridge, and when I'm at my fridge, you know, like you have the water that you just stick your pitcher under there and it just starts pouring it out. How many have one of those? Right? And so I would suggest to you that that's like a controlled pour. There is nothing that I have been able to figure out so far, and believe me, if I could, I would. Like, you can't shove the thing in there harder and make it go quicker. I've broke the light in there somehow and it doesn't work anymore, so I do this in the dark a lot. I can't speed it up. I can't slow it down. All I can do is put my pitcher in and wait. And listen, I can be a patient person. Like, I can tear apart a motorcycle. I can clean it up. I can work on it. I can be down in the D-shells. I can clean for hours. But there's just something every morning about, really? I mean, I could go over there and get a cup and spit it into another cup faster than this thing could fill it. <laughs> but the truth is, one thing that I've discovered about faith is that when we're drinking from that living water, it's more like a controlled pour. You can't speed it up. You can't really slow it down. All you can do is wait. And, I, and there's lots of places in Scripture, but this one that really stuck out to me is those that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. You probably know that. They'll mount up with wings on eagles. They run and not grow weary. They walk and not faint. How many have heard that before? There's something that happens in the waiting. And in the waiting, 
I'll just tell you for me, I have found not here in this place, in my own personal times of crying out to God and say, God, what are you doing? I need help. I can't speed this up. I can't slow it down. I would love for these things to pass. I would love for this help in this moment. And all you can do is wait, but it's in the waiting that God begins to fill you with life. It's in the waiting that I've seen some of the greatest overflows. In fact, I was using this this morning as I was filling up my coffee or filling up the, from the fridge and it was in the dark and I thought I was doing good and I, I, it overflowed, I spilled everywhere. And that's kind of like that overflowing thing that God does, it's in that waiting where it just starts seeping over. And before you know it, you realize, wow, wow, God's really doing something and he is. And that's what's happening here in this story. And here's what happens, what change can do. Change can change the relationships of others around you. You can see that in the story, but there's one specific thing that I wanna point out from this one here, and that's simply this. Is that the change that Jesus can bring can reframe the wells that we visit. You see, ultimately, she's got living water, but eventually she's gonna have to go back and just get some water from the well. She's gonna go back there eventually and get something to drink. And there are places in our lives, the same is true, that we'll go back and we'll revisit, whether it's in our mind or circumstances that we replay over and over. And we go back to those places at, and at some level feeling ashamed. But after the change, happens. You can go back to those places and they can be reframed knowing that God touched you in that moment. That can be you. And I believe that there is somebody here, if not more than one, that you're here this morning looking at your life as this old well of shame. And listen, you don't have to walk back to shame anymore, but when you walk back to see those old things of your past and in your mind of things that you're not proud of, that from today forward you can walk back knowing that Jesus met you there and that's the moment that everything changed. Come on, somebody. He can bring the change and reframe everything. Last point. This last person, this mutt, he knows how to give. There's a story that's taking place in Luke chapter 10. This teacher of the law asking Jesus, and these are my These are my rewording of the phrases here. But he basically asked him, what must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus says, what do you think? And he says, the teacher says, give God all your love, your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and give your neighbor love, love that you give yourself. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. And the teacher, looking for a love loophole says to him, and who is my neighbor? And you know, he was asking this question because we all ask the same question. We want to know 
what is our relational liability to those who are around us, our neighbors? And so enter this person, a mutt of a person, another Samaritan, a good one. And here's this question that I have for you. What kind of mixed breed has the courage to cross the street and invest in a complete stranger, right? The good Samaritan is the one who goes over, helps somebody who's been robbed, maimed, left on the road. But here's what happens in the story. There's a man traveling down from Jerusalem. He's traveling on a dangerous road. There's no distinguishing marks of race, creed, color, relationship, political status, view, or social status. But yet love is meant to be indiscriminate. In fact, if you look back at the original text that's written in some translations, Jesus says this about the man. A certain man went down. You know what that means? That's like being specifically vague. Literally, what that means is this. That idea of certain is used of persons or things concerning which the writer either cannot or will not speak more specifically about. In other words, when Jesus was saying a certain man, he was being completely intentional about being vague about who he was. In other words, it doesn't matter who the person is. And he fell among robbers and he was stripped, beat, and left for half dead. And three men saw him. The priest and the Levite, they passed by. Too risky, could be a trap, could be polluting themselves, unclean for seven days. They were too busy doing the Lord's work. The priest could have been going to church. The Levite could have been worried about keeping the church clean or orderly. But here's the one thing I want to point out is that both in their busyness of loving God and people overlooked and went the other way. Think about that. And enter the Samaritan, an unlikely choice, a disgusting choice. He saw the man and was moved with compassion. He was completely moved on the inside. The other two saw and walked, but this guy saw and was moved. He was moved within his heart. And I would suggest to you, how can we give like this person, it's allow ourselves to be moving with compassion. You know how that happens? It's by putting yourself in places of other people. We have connect groups that are starting up. Put yourself in a connect group and grow your compassion. Grow your empathy. That's how it can only happen by getting in other people's lives and getting close enough to see what's going on, like what's happening in this story. He invested without expecting a return. He bandaged, he took time, he sheltered expense, and he stayed with him, and he took care of all the costs with no thanks necessary. And so, Jesus says to the teacher, which one of the three was a neighbor to the man? Think about this. Jesus changed the question. It's not who is my neighbor, but what kind of neighbor are you? Now, he's asking this person, what kind of neighbor are you of the three? What do you think the most common response would be of the three? Someone say it. Samaritan, right? The common answer is a Samaritan. But I want you to feel the tension of what's happening in the story. He asks him the same thing. Which of the three? He can't even say the word Samaritan. 
He says, the one who shows mercy. Sometimes loving other people is a struggle. But we love anyway. And so I got a couple videos here I want to show you this morning. And uh, to show you what loving our neighbor could look like, what compassion looks like. Let's check out this first video. Some of the country's best musicians are rallying behind a grieving Queensland family. They're helping to remember a young piano prodigy killed in a farm accident near Gympie. 12-year-old Kyne Pennell, creative, cheeky, an animal lover and musical prodigy. was his calling. Over seven months, he learned to play, teaching himself music theory and composition too. He had already committed 35 pieces of classical music to his memory. Kyan lost his life in an accident on the family farm last week. His mother, Amanda, discovered sheet music her son was writing. A modern classical, Kyan called it. Well, I didn't get to hear what he had in his mind's eye. On social media, Amanda asked for someone to play it. Musicians from across the country answered the call. Just four bars. Each note, a tribute to Kyan. The composition adopted and transformed by some of the country's best. He would have been so humbled. Musicians from the Queensland Symphony Orchestra are working on a piece to play at Kyan's funeral. It blows me away when I think about how unique he was, really. A final note for a boy's farewell. Dante Chacon, 7 News. Would you like to hear the piece that he created? Here's more. Hi there. So the beautiful Daniel at Channel 10 Studio 10 sent me a message about a story that has unfolded this week with a beautiful piano playing prodigy, Kian, who composed a wonderful piano piece that hadn't been played and I saw um, his mum had sent out a call to play it, so I'm in tour rehearsals at the moment and I got my entire band. We all took a moment and we all fell in love with the beautiful piano piece and just played it here for you today.
words that she's saying in the song. A life broken in time. We send out our love. We send out our light. And do you know what they were offering to this mom with this big question mark over what this, her son had wrote? They offered help that she couldn't give for herself. She had no idea what those notes meant and somebody else did. And I would suggest to you this morning that there are people around us who are looking at the pages of their life and trying to figure out how to make it make sense. And do you know where that comes in? That's you and that's me. That we could cross the street to somebody else's life to send out our love, to send out our light and watch what only God can do. If you'll stand with me right now, real quick. We celebrate National Mutt Day. We can learn a lot from mutts. We can learn the faith of a mutt can change everything. We can learn how one person through an interaction with Jesus caused their well to be reframed. And when we can learn to give like a good Samaritan, we can see another life changed. And so this morning as we worship, if you're here this morning and you have crumbs in your life you don't know what to do with, apply faith to it and give it to Him. If there's something here that you're not proud of and ashamed of, let Him reframe it this morning. And if you're here struggling to love somebody around you, this is your moment to close the loophole and love anyway. But while we worship, I encourage you, ask between you and God this morning, who, who is it that you want me to love? Come on, let's worship. Saturate me with your Holy Spirit. Come and fit. Help me feel every fiber of my being out of darkness and into your glory. Into your presence I come. Sing it again, saturate, saturate me with your Holy Spirit. Come and fill, heal me, fill every fiber of my being out of darkness and into your glory, into your presence I come. One last time, sing it out, saturate with your Holy Spirit, come and fill, heal me, feel everything, out of darkness and into your glory, into your presence I come. Lord, I pray right now as we get ready to leave this place, Lord, that we would leave here full of your Holy Spirit, inspired by the representations that we saw this morning. Lord, a faith of those who drank deep, of those who were willing to give, 
And Lord, may we use those tools to reach those around us for the kingdom. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Turn and greet somebody. This is our last day of Super Sunday Family Fun Day, so make sure you head out, grab your tickets, and have a great rest of your day.